Welcome to the Wellness for Educators podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Kennedy. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Wellness for Educators podcast. I'm Katherine Kennedy, the Executive Director of Wellness for Educators and your host for this episode. We're going to be focusing today on the wellness of those who serve in nonprofits, specifically those who serve youth and caregivers in underserved and underrepresented communities. We have three very special guests with us, two of whom are brothers. I'd like to introduce them first and then jump into our conversation. Francisco Tito Santos Silva serves as the executive director of Boston Uncornered. He has worked for more than a decade supporting young people from underserved communities to help them reach their greatest potential. He has a deep commitment to the core influencer population Boston Uncornered serves and understands them to be the key to ending systemic generational urban poverty and gang violence. Prior to Boston Uncornered, Tito was the Director of Engagement for UTEC, where he was responsible for developing training for staff, consulting other GVP organizations through the training center and helping frontline staff and staff of color develop on their professional journey to becoming organizational leaders. He has also worked for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Department of Youth Services, where he supported incarcerated young adults in their efforts to transition back into the community, as well as for the Elliott Community Social Services, where he identified safe and secure placements for children and families. Tito earned a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and a Master of Arts in Community Social Psychology from the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Raised in Brockton, Massachusetts, his educational and professional journey was almost derailed by street violence that took the life of a close friend. But with the right support, he was able to get back on track as he is now helping other young people do the same. Tito, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And his brother, Jonathan Santos Silva, has been a troublemaking, system-breaking leader in education for over 12 years. You may know him from his work as founder of the Library Institute and as the chairman of the Board of Ed podcast. But Jonathan can also be credited with contributions to the Cambier Catalyst Fellowship and South Dakota's Native American Achievement Schools. Jonathan has been recognized for his work as a classroom teacher, founding school leader, and leadership coach, and is a sought-after speaker due to his engaging and uplifting style. He holds a BS in Business Administration from Northeastern University and an MA in Education Administration from the University of South Dakota, and currently resides in Rhode Island with his wife and four children and two dogs. Jonathan, so great to have you back with us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be home. And finally, Shamari Jones, who also serves as the Vice President of our Wellness for Educators Board of Directors. He is the Director of Equity and Strategic Engagement at Bellevue School District in Bellevue, Washington. He leads staff in thoughtful exploration of institutionalized racism and its impact on student learning and mentors students to raise their social awareness and help them feel more connected and engaged in the district and their communities which has resulted in a community-wide conversation bringing to light racial and socioeconomic inequities. He serves as a powerful advocate for and witness to the experiences of students of color to help district leaders identify, confront, disrupt, and dismantle structures that limit the potential of those students. He developed several student empowerment initiatives like Students Organized Against Racism or SOAR, Breaking Out of the Margins or BOOM, and SISTA's Having Outstanding Uniqueness Together, or SHOUT, as well as parent advocacy groups like the Parent Alliance for Black Scholars, or PABS. In 2019, Shamari was recognized as a leader to learn from by Education Week. He has served as the Chief Operations Officer at the Urban League of Metropolitan Seattle, a not-for-profit organization with 82 years of activism and community experience in the heart of Seattle's most diverse neighborhood, the Central District. Shamari also volunteers at the Seattle University Center for Social Transformation and Leadership and the Bellevue Police Chief Diversity Committee. 
He holds a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from Tuskegee University and has a daughter in college. Shamari, thank you as always for being here and for all of the support and guidance you provide our organization. My pleasure and praise the Lord that daughter in college has graduated from college and I don't have to deal with that expense any longer. <laughs> Done Dada. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so I'd love to start off our conversation with each of you talking about your organization, as well as the role that you play and the role that each of your colleagues plays in supporting the communities that you serve. And anybody can jump off first. Shamari Jones, uh, Director of Equity Strategic Engagement. Um, working here in Bellevue, it's, uh, it's a um, city that's about 150 to 60,000 um, residents, so not a very large city at all. And uh, within it, we have a very small number of diversity within the uh, particular race of individuals that look like me. Um, black, and so there are approximately three to 3.5 percent black folks across the entire city, um, somewhere fluctuating between 12 and 15 percent um, Latino folks across our community, a high concentration of folks who identify as Asian, um, around 40 percent of our community is Asian, uh, and then the remainder being white, which is um, in our country, our dominant culture. The role I play as director of equity is one in which uh, I often describe as a disruptor. I'm a disruptor to systematized tactics of oppression that have historically uh, underserved or not allowed for opportunity to be accessed by large groups of individuals like our Black folks, our Indigenous folks, our BIPOC, BIPOC folks in general. Um, I work with the school board in developing and eradicating some of the policy norms that are out of whack or practices within our organization. I advise the superintendent within our system. Um, I sit on the cabinet, and so I'm seeking to embed in every one of our departments opportunities for uh, us to really think deeply around what it is that we're doing in service of our communities that have been underserved. Um, or a transference from what we do presently to something that is much more affirming to our entire population of people, not just our folks of color, but our white folks benefit greatly from our folks of color thriving. And so um, within that, I, I also oversee family engagement and student engagement efforts, uh, which really directly focuses on our students feeling this sense of empowerment so that they are not dependent upon those who are adults in our space to give them the access. But rather, they know how to get it on their own if that support doesn't come by way of this, the adults that are placed in their spaces. Um, and then as far as the staff that I work with, you know, whether they are staff who are on my team or just staff who are co-conspirators in this effort to dismantle and disrupt uh, many of these challenges, um, they are the ones who are on the front lines really leading for this effort. You know, this is hard work and it's hard work. Um, those who are usually at the forefront of this work trend to be people of color, which is really challenging because as I describe um, the old adage of crabs in a barrel, um, whereas you have a barrel with, you know, crabs trying to get out of it. Um, and I might be in the barrel as well, seeking to pull my fellow crabs out you know, but still all the while in the barrel myself, not having the institutionalized power that I need or others who are on my team or co-conspirators who work alongside me um, need in order to really move the needle. So in this conversation, a lot of our efforts are to steer our white colleagues um, to a greater level of en enlightenment, um, a, a greater depth of consciousness uh, and a greater support uh, in leading this effort as opposed to just following the leaders within this effort who trend to be people of color. I'll stop there for now. Tito Santosova, I'm the executive director of Boston and Cornered. I'm relatively new to this role. Uh, we've been here for about three months now, um, but I've been engaged with the organization for a little while. Um, uh, like Catherine had mentioned, for the last decade or so, I have uh, spent my time um, trying to, to support commu uh, 
students, young people who are involved um, at risk, proven risk, sometimes they're called, um, we call them core influencers. Um, but this population inside of Massachusetts that you know drive a lot of the gang violence. So Boston and Cornered's focus and why I came over to Boston and Cornered is um, this, this we're, we're attacking the problem from a different perspective, right? So we understand that gang violence um, is actually kind of a, a, is, is a, is a product of generational urban poverty, right? In a lot of spaces. And so a lot of these organizations, um, I think with the best of intentions, and I think we can talk about this till we're blue in the face in the nonprofit world, but you chase the numbers, right? You have to chase the data that's going to generate more resources so you can support. And it's oftentimes those young people who are not actually being engaged, the ones who don't really want the help, who actually need the most help. And so some organizations get really complacent or it's easier to just grab the, those kind of, we call them like fringe players, those guys who are kind of in the streets, who are familiar with the gangs, um, but are not really driving any of the community violence. And so our perspective is that if we can focus our resources and our, um, and, and our, and our staff on those core influences, we're talking about those, you know, Boston's gang population is, is really small. It's about 3,000. Um, and of those 3,000, we assume that there's somewhere between six and 800 that are actually core influences, those who drive the violence, have large networks um, of influence inside of the community. Um, and if we can take our efforts and focus on them, um, our resources and through education, hopefully, and, and education is very broad for us. So we say education could be traditional pathways like you know, an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, um, uh, a, a more unconventional pathway, like maybe, maybe an internship somewhere or getting a job inside of a role that the young person uh, is, is passionate about. Um, but we take education as this idea of, take, of going from a, a less knowledge to more knowledge. And so we use education in connecting with these in, in individuals um, to try to help disrupt the community in a positive way. So if we can get these core influencers who have these networks and have these abilities, if we can encourage them to turn their lives around, but they're still embedded in the community because they are community members, they will then hopefully disrupt the community in a positive way. The young people who are following them on a negative path will then jump on and follow them on a positive path. And that's our model. Um, it's been about six years, so we're still relatively new um, in this kind of variation. And what I love about the organization is we, we're willing to shift because the goal is to essentially disrupt. Um, Shamari and I, we were talking a little bit about Boston, but there's this idea that Boston is this like, really wealthy school, predominantly white communities. Um, and the reality is that there are a lot of pockets of generational urban poverty inside of Boston, Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan, these communities of like mostly of color um, being gentrified, kind of pushed in and squeezed in upon, upon themselves. And then we ask these students to, and these young people to just have, you know, use morality to not get involved in gang violence. And so it's kind of, a, it's really dismissive. And so my job, Having had this ability to be in the streets through my own kind of boneheaded decisions, but also having been able to be inside of private institutions, I see myself as this bridge piece. As an executive director, my job is to get the staff members, the students to see what's, what they can accomplish um, and providing access for them by being an example, right? Because I do believe that representation matters but also to get founders, the foundation, foundations, these really, really wealthy pocket of Boston to see what can happen if resources are actually allocated to students of color, right? To not just dismiss them based on this like moral compass that you can say, it's easy to say, I would never do that when you live in a community that's safe and has good education and good schools and you can call the police. It's really, it, it's, uh, it's, it's really hard to say that when you feel like you're on your own and you're a 16 year old kid inside of Dorchester. And, and there's gang violence around you and there are no, and the school system is, is just, you know, less supportive and, and less resource rich. And so my job is really, I see it as being that bridge for both sides to connect in the middle uh, around me and then hopefully step back. Um, my staff members, we call them college readiness advisors. We're very intentional on in making sure that every single one of them has lived experience inside of the community in which they're accessing our students. So we're not necessarily looking for the students who want us. We're looking for the students who don't want us. And in order to do that enough, if you've ever been inside of a hood or projects or whatever, 
you have to like people have to know who you are before you can start talking to people in those communities. And so we're intentional around finding people who are from those communities to come and work with us to then go back into the communities and try to identify those core influences. Um, and so that's one of the requirements. And I think that it's been beneficial in helping us to bridge relationships with the communities and not just the community members who want the help. Again, I, I, have, I can't stress that enough. It's those students, those young people who have actually found some success inside of the streets. Um, and they think that that's the only way that they can see the success, continue to see success. Our job is to get them to see otherwise. Cool. My name is Jonathan Santos Silva. I have no relation to the last guy that was talking. <laughs> no, it's my brother. Uh, and I'm the founder of the Library Institute, an organization whose mission is uh, to embolden and equip indigenous young people, families, and educators to transform schools and the communities around them. Um, like as Tito already said, and as Catherine shared, we grew up in uh, urban Massachusetts, Brockton, Massachusetts, a, a working class town. Um, so folks often ask, why I work in indigenous communities, right? Uh, mainly around South Dakota, Nebraska, because it's such a departure from where we grew up. But um, you know, growing up <clears throat> in a place like Brockton, it was very diverse and um, very, uh, but, but truly diverse, not just that there were people of color around, but we were really uh, integrated in our schools around folks, Portuguese, Cape Verdean, Haitian, immigrants from all over uh, Central and South America, Asian uh, folks. So, we grew up in a community. I wouldn't say it was, um, you know, uh, the, you know, uh, without um, conflict or challenge. But for the most part, we grew up in classrooms with kids who looked, uh, some looked like us, and a lot who didn't. Um, and those are the kids you played kickball with, and baseball with, and football with, and whatever. Um, and then uh, in high school, we moved to the suburbs uh, in a place where you become, you know, it's monochromatic. You're the only only in all your classes, and so that was a really hard change, at least for me. I think academically, I did everything I needed to do to, to, to excel, but identity-wise is trying to figure out your space and your place. And so um, through a whole bunch of you know different paths and stuff that Lord took me down, I ended up teaching high school math on the Pine Ridge Reservation. I just jumped at the opportunity to just get out of my normal um, environment and see something different. Um, and I found a lot of resonance in a community that was Majority, majority people of color, you know, all mainly indigenous folks, but where the leadership was native, the superintendent, the city, you know, the town council, you know, it was just such a different experience for me. It, in some ways, harkened back to my um, growing up, <clears throat> but in other ways, very different rural. You know, I had I, I had a very narrow kind of archetype of rural, as in like Billy Bob and white, and you know, I didn't think of people of color <clears throat> in those communities with which is such a, you know, it's ignorant. On, it was ignorant on my part, but it was really to be embraced in a community like that, to experience someone else's culture and language. I just felt like I had been given so much and that with all the privileges I had through my education, through the support of my family, it just felt like a natural place where I could, you know, pay it forward. And so I've committed most of the last uh, 12 years, not all, but most of it to uh, indigenous communities in that part of the country. And so um, I'm really fortunate. The folks that I work with, uh, you know, welcome me, accept me, support my work and vision. We have a board um, of four that is all um, Lakota parents, educators. Uh, it's, I think it's a very different model than a lot of nonprofits. You know, we don't have like a lawyer. We don't have, you know, someone who can write all of our documents for free. We don't have, you know, none of them are millionaires. Uh, so nobody's writing us fat checks. But they're, you know, they're rooted in the community. They send kids to schools like the ones we work in. And so they help make sure, they help me make sure that anything I'm laying down as terms of vision is authentic and it's reflective and responsive to the things that I'm hearing and not like, you know, going out, listening, and then coming back with the same solution that I was going to do anyway, which is the way I felt growing up. You know, people come to our community and, you know, in Brockton or Boston where we would go to undergrad and here, white folks come to the community um, with their, their scripts, right? Like, I'm just working long enough to put myself out of this job. The only problem is I just can't find anyone from the community who can do this. And they think like it's, uh, you know, it's really like powerful and so selfless. But to someone from the community, it's really um, disrespectful because it, it makes me think to one of two things. Either one, uh, you, have, you lack an asset-based perspective on our community. You don't see all the things we bring. 
or two, you're really bad at leadership development, in which case, why are you here? We don't need you. We need somebody good. Um, and so like, it's really trying to lead differently. And so that's why I have a board that looks like our kids. And then our staff um, <clears throat> is all Lakota and Dakota. So for folks um, you know, who did history in the United States, Sioux, S-I-O-U-X, is not a term that originates from the languages of the people of that region. But these are the folks you learned about, the Ocheti Shokowi people, the people of the seven council fires. Those are the folks that I serve in North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, for the most part. Um, and so those are the folks on our team. Um, they're all lifelong educators um, and they're providing um, space for other educators to grow. So our main project is the, the Chongleshka, which is a word that means the circle. Um, it's about relying on Lakota language and culture and history as a foundation for building young people's um, confidence, a uh, sense of joy and pride and, and who they are and where they come from so that they can leverage that passion and energy you know, in all academic areas. And so we have a, a, an indigenous learning pod that we are seeding. Um, it's a really cool project. Um, we've got a small number of kids that are in a pilots right now. They're coming in the afternoons um, with the goal of opening it up full time as an um, alternative learning space, as an independent learning space for kids in, in Rapid City which is, um, has the largest population of urban indigenous folks in South Dakota. Um, but then we use that, that Changleshka, the circle, um, as the center um, of like a hub and spoke model. And so we work with schools that are on and off the reservation that serve you know, 90 uh, plus percent uh, native student uh, population. Um, these are schools that um, are, depending on how you look at it, they're either chronically failing or as I look at it, they've been chronically failed. Um, you know, the overarching like reform narrative about education in communities of color. So whether we're talking about um, urban communities or rural communities of color um, is one that um, schools are failing kids. If we, if we even go that far, sometimes we just think kids don't care and parents don't care. And if only the parents would, you know, blah, 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 which is really, again, back to the deficit. But if we, we get beyond that, we get into that the schools are failing which I feel like is like some ways even more insidious because it's um, inaccurate. Schools aren't failing our kids of color. Schools are doing what they're designed to do. School, the, the board boarding schools that uh, were introduced in the 1800s, the, um, the, the first schools to educate African-American students, they weren't designed to educate our kids to be CEOs or founders or you know, you know, visionaries. They were created to strip in indigeneity and blackness from our kids it was like kill the indian save the man that phrase i think people think that comes from movies and like it's revisionist but that was actually part of like um you know recorded remarks by the superintendent of the boarding school for which the other boarding schools and subsequent schools after were built so this isn't this isn't a situation where schools are failing our kids this is the system performing the way it was designed to and so our work we try to disrupt that. I think Shamari mentioned earlier about the ways in which we navigate these systems as people of color or people of, of culture, as a friend of mine says, because it's not our culture, he says, that distinguishes us, it's our culture. And so the people, the peoples of culture, we navigate spaces without organizational power and authority. Um, and so it's thinking about it differently. How do we build power um, in the organization, in an, in an organizing fashion? How do we help families to, to pull together, young people to pull together with the local educators to create a, a organized people with a collective voice to demand the things that they want from school and to get involved in uh, creating sustainable initiatives to change it. So we talk about increasing kids' access to the Lakota language during the academic day, um, increasing the opportunity for them to engage in all curriculum that is rooted in experiences and, uh, and that are familiar to them from their culture, from their history, from home, um, and ensuring that the educators who lead these schools know how to engage community respectfully and sustainably so that it's not like, we're gonna show up, here's a box curriculum. If you do this, then you'll be fine. And if you don't, it's your fault, right? No, that's not gonna work. It hasn't worked for the last however many years, it's not gonna work going forward. So how do we um, build the power in a community to, um, espouse authentic visions for themselves and be um, supported in, in taking those vision or bringing those visions to fruition. 
Well, thank you all for, for sharing the amazing work that, that you're doing um, with each of the communities that you're working in, and then also collectively. Um, I, you know, coming back to something that Shamari mentioned, this the work that you're doing is hard work and hard work. And I think that one of the things that I would love to hear from you all on is what kind of struggles that you see for your staff and and on the flip side, how are you supporting them and yourself uh, and or encouraging them to support themselves or how are you supporting yourself? And again, anybody can jump in, um, whoever wants to start. I'm really like not the best at responding to this question because on the support for myself side, I don't think that I do as well as I can. Um, I think about the struggle that I and we face as a people, uh, an uphill battle. Uh, it's charging into the center of an existing war, undermanned, understaffed, without the right weaponry to actually succeed. Um, and that is, equivalent to banging your head up against a brick wall from time to time, thinking that you're gonna break the wall. Um, um, it takes an entire movement, which, is, which encompasses more people than we have in the fight right now. Um, we unfortunately have, as I mentioned a while back, um, way more people of color in this fight who they themselves don't have the institutionalized or positionality power necessary to eradicate centuries of oppressive behaviors, policies, laws, practices in education, that'd be RCWs and WACs, et cetera, that are masked to be something that uh, brings an equitable response to the systematized way that we offer education. Um, but unfortunately, that is just not the case. Um, the cases that, you know, as Jonathan stated a moment ago, you know, this education uh, system and curricula that has de been developed within it um, is very well intentioned to ensure that people are in the places in which they have been given, you know, that there's a particular dominant culture and that there are cultures that are on the opposing side of that who historically have been there and will be there until we do something dynamic to transform it. So, uh, as far as struggle, the struggle is like I never want to continue to work as hard as I work for something that I can't successfully transform. You know, I do have hope, you know, tremendous amounts of it. I do believe that um, that my participation in this effort can make substantial change. Um, but what I'm now um, more cognizant of is uh, the reality of what it is I can more specifically change all on my own without the support of my uh, my dominant culture colleagues, you know, locking arms with me, you know, crossing that line. Um, I'm much more conscious and aware of how much of myself I can give before I, you know, deflate or feel a sense of defeat that stifles me uh, in a way that will caused me to have to build back to where I once was. Um, there's a lot of trial and error in this work, um, especially for me who's not independent, like my counterparts, you know, not in a space where like I, I have the final say, right? I actually adhere to a national agenda, you know, and then a statewide agenda, and then a small school systems agenda, you know, led by usually a board of individuals who, almost always have never been involved in the system in the capacity in which I'm involved. Um, and so uh, it's very difficult, it's a heavy lift. There's a lot of need for um, after work exploration of what are the things that, you know, uh, pull me back from the cliff or the edge. You know, there's necessity to find uh, meditative or relaxation strategies to when I get heated because it happens all the time. Like I know that I'm telling you something that is appropriate to transform in service of me, the individual and the people who look like me. And so for you to blatantly disregard the things that are necessary for my thrival beyond survival, my thrival to put me on the same platform 
as everyone else whose platform is solid and has been solid since the inception of this effort and body of work. Sometimes for others who I'm seeking to influence, um, that is just short of laughable, you know, and the suppression of my emotions and feelings and the, you know, the, the fact that I go through trainings where I'm the one who has to be centered, you know, that sucks. You know, I've all but said a cuss word on this podcast. I'm choosing to not, so you don't have to edit it out. Um, but um <clears throat> Go for it. I don't care. <laughs> the, the struggle Express is real. <laughs> and it's not very easy to support, you know, others who are dealing with the same struggle that I'm dealing with. Right. And so um, I, I've tried um, sometimes to no uh, avail to create spaces of healing for um, some of our folks of color who are in the battle, you know, if you think about one of our, you know, historical wars, and oftentimes people get wounded, and they're given a space for reprieve, you know, to recover, to come back, to heal. We don't have that. You know, there's an expectation for you to just keep on pushing, keep on pushing, keep on pushing, you know, um, and that's very difficult. So I don't have the, the answer for the support, except for being a resource, you know, calling people, um, um, showing up when they need me to show up, inviting them to things that they don't get invited to. A young lady just the other day asked me if I would help support in hosting a event for our black staff in the Bellevue School District um, that is off campus, that is after work hours, just to connect and get to know one another. That's what I feel is important. You know, who are the people in my neighborhood who I can lean on, who I can talk to, uh, whose sentences that I can finish because we have a cultural normative experience that uh, really takes off one or two layers of me having to put on a show um, as I approach or engage in conversation. Um, that's very helpful. And I will continue to do those things, to participate in those things, but also to, from the position that I hold, offer and ignite, initiate those types of things for the people who are in spaces who really need that wellness um, in uh, arenas that don't provide opportunities for wellness, just an expectation that you do. Thank you, Shamari. And, and I, I feel like we, in, in my space specifically, we, we deal with a lot of those same things. Um, I think for us, one of the, we struggle a lot um, because of the population specifically that like vicarious trauma and burnout because um, I think unlike, well, like most all nonprofits, I think everyone, you, you do the work because you have a passion, you have a heart, you have something that's drawing you to it. And so you, you're, you're gonna pour in probably more than you, you should essentially um, until you're on empty. Uh, but I think with our population, I, one thing that I've learned is that when we fail, a lot of the time, it's life or death for our students. Right? I've been to more funerals for, for kids than I care to ever admit. And you do get, you either get desensitized or you get traumatized and you struggle. Like there's no kind of in between. And so really early on in my career, I understood that like fair or not, I had to figure out a way to practice self-care. Um, because when I don't practice self-care uh, or when we don't practice self-care, we don't fill up our own cups in order to fill the others. What ends up happening in our field is that you're giving, for lack of a better term, half-assed answers, half-assed support to students. And these students, a lot of the time, we are the only resource they have. You know, majority of the students that we work with, proven risk, at-risk young people, they're not coming to us at 19, 20, 21, 22 having never been engaged by any organization, right? They're coming to us having been, you know, been failed by the, the, the public school system, failed by community supports, failed by the Department of Children's and Families. Um, like, I think there's something like 70 something percent of the students that we get with have, have gone through the uh, Department of Children's and Families. They've been failed by the Department of Youth Services, like all these institutions by the state that are supposed to be supporting them have failed them. And so we come in, trying to support, trying to help, trying to, trying to elevate them, meet them where they are. We have to overcome all of that other baggage that they have, the trauma that they've experienced from other organizations, and at the same time, pour in, pour in, pour in, and help them get to a point. And so very easily you burn out and you get re-traumatized 
and you and you 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 develop this sense of apathy and, and like frustration with the, with the, the work, but also the people making the decisions are 80, 90 percent white people who have not even have ever been engaged. They've never even been to the hood. They've never even been to these communities that they're claiming to support. And they're dictating what programs we're supposed to put into place, what opportunities are supposed to be available for our students. How do we get the students to a place, uh, to a space where they can be productive? And so like what my brother was saying, you know, like, you know, kill this average bearded man, it's kind of that same feeling, right? Like, let's get these kids out of this hood life. Let's get these kids out of their culture, everything that they're experiencing and tell them it's all wrong. And here is the blueprint of what you're supposed to fit into. And we try to be intentional around not doing that. But again, to kind of circle back, I was really intentional around that because I burned out in the first couple of years of this work. You're pouring, you're pouring, you're giving, you're frustrated with the program, you're frustrated with the work, you're frustrated with losing students, you're frustrated with going to funerals, like, and then you just start to get like ineffective, essentially. Um, and so I, part of what I've done to support my staff, um, I've developed trainings, um, self-care training specifically for frontline staff that work in nonprofit fields, that work with proven risk, you know, at-risk young people. Um, and I think there are a lot of great opportunities and programs and trainings out there for self-care, but mine is very specific on like, let's just be real, right? Like, let's just be honest. Like, are you helping your staff reach their goals? A lot of the staff that I have, they're connected to the community, but they don't necessarily want to be a street worker for the rest of their life. You don't want to spend the next 40 years walking up and down the street trying to find gang members. Like, that's just not realistic. And so are we, are we also at the same time of doing the work? Are we pouring into our staff members to get them to their goals and their dreams? I'm a firm believer that if people are working towards what they believe in personally, they can then give more efficiently uh, to those that they th the missions that they believe in. Um, and so we talk about that a lot. Um, and I talk about that with my staff all the time. Like, what are your goals? And and I and I encourage them not to say, I want to be a street worker for the rest of my life. Like, don't give me that. Like, it's not, I know it's not true. Let's not, let's not blow smoke. Let's just be real. But I think by having those conversations around, what do you want? Where do you want to be? We've developed emerging leaders program, like building bridges, trying to dismantle some of those struggles um, of that, that like lack of transition from being frontline staff to leadership. But we, we have um, scheduled days off. Um, it's not about just meditation. It's like, what are you doing to take care of yourself? What are you doing to be good? We have days where we just chill. My staff would just hang out. Um, and, we, and we're very also intentional on being, keeping it culturally competent. Right? Like I'm, I'm tired personally, uh, being part of an organization that supports students of color, supposedly cultures of color. And then they come up with these like super kind of white culture self-care days where you're hanging out and doing things that are not playing like acoustic music and singing kumbaya when, when we want to sit down and have a cookout, right? Like, I think that there's a cultural gap there that happens a lot and we're intentional around that. So we'll sit on, on the front porch and just chop it up and have talks. We'll talk about, you know, the latest rap album that come out. We'll, we'll play the latest rap album in our program because that's what we want to listen to, right? Like, I think small things like that. I think sometimes when we think about self-care for our staff, we want these grand gestures, these retreats, like let's go away for four days and let's all do a trust fall. But like, it's not really relevant. And it's for my population, my staff, like we don't do trust falls like that. Like I trust you because I'm here with you. I turn, I, I gave you my back. We're sitting, we're sitting together. We're breaking bread. That's how we build community inside of the culture, inside of the community that I come from. That's how we build relationships. So whether you catch me when I fall off the table or not is, is relevant. Like, are you sharing your food with me? Are you coming to the table and talking about, are you, are you telling me about your family? Are we talking about what your goals are for your children? Are we being intentional around making sure, like, am I paying attention to the fact that you, on your caseload, you've lost two kids this week. So maybe you should just, just stay home for the week. Like, just, just go relax and take, take some time off. Right? Like, am I paying attention to the fact, like, I mean, like, go get your haircut. You haven't got a haircut in like three weeks, bro. Why don't you just go take some time during the middle of the day? I know you've been running around with all these students. Go take some time to get your haircut. Go get some food for yourself. Like it seems so small, but we I think we forget it because we're so busy working. And then we oftentimes have leaders that don't understand our culture, don't understand what we do for our communities, um, and don't understand what we need from from a from a cultural perspective. Not even like hood or whatever. Like culturally, 
And then they're dictating what we should be doing, not only to succeed in our spaces, but then like what we should be doing as self-care in our spaces. And that doesn't work. So the self-care training that we, we, we talk about a lot is like, like I said, being really specific, that's culturally competent, that we're intentional around your goals, helping each person individually reach their objectives, um, being honest about the work that we're doing, being honest about why we're doing the work um, and, and, and making sure that we're clear and keeping really open communication. Like my team will come to me and just be like, hey, I need, I'm, I'm not coming in today. I'm not right. I don't expect, you don't give me, a, you don't have to give me an explanation. You don't have to tell me if you have time. We have unlimited time off for our staff. So we don't, we don't, I don't measure that. Like do the work. Like when you're getting calls at 10 o'clock at night from this, from the community, uh, you're not putting in for those hours. So if you need a day off in the middle of a Tuesday, you don't you have an, even have an answer. You're just not right. Just take the day. Just let it, let it be. Because when, again, when we do fail, when we do come up short, it's a lot of the time, it's the life of a, of a student that we, that, that hangs in the balance. Yeah, um, I'll start at the, where he ended talking about time, because I think it's so important. Um, uh, one of the things we do, so all, all my staff, as I said, my team members, they're all indigenous women. Um, and so I think that when you're working with staff that is from the community that you serve, there's a different level of uh, stress and trauma that folks are dealing with, right? Because you have your own experience navigating schools that weren't designed to serve you, but were designed to, you know, reform you. And then you deal with the vicarious trauma of looking at folks that you care about, you love, going through similar systems, struggling through them. Um, you know, on top of that, you know, you know, we have the whole, uh, what's her name? Gab, uh, Gabby Petito, the, the young woman that, that was missing, they found her dead. And like, I feel my heart goes out for her family, you know what I'm saying, and her community. But Native women, Native women and girls, two-spirit people are more than 10 times more likely to be murdered, to go missing than any other, than the, than the general population. And there's never been a case of a Native woman missing, get this attention. Not even the, 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 the issue in its totality, the way that the systems uh, don't overlap to ensure that those cases even get investigated, that families get to, to an answer. Not even that whole travesty, miscarriage of justice has ever gotten the attention that this one case has gotten. So this is not a like shade at that young woman and her family. It's more like, let's just look at what we value and what we don't. You know, you could say it about a business, right? They've said this, I've heard this a thousand times. You can tell a lot about a business by where, how it spends time and money. I think it's the same about a country how we spend our time and money fixated on one case that we sensationalize, right? And part of it, just all up in that woman's family's privacy. And then we have this ongoing issue in, 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 in Native America that is ignored. So you have that, you have Native young people more than two and a half times more likely to commit suicide than any other group. And you have uh, the whole orange shirt movement uh, that we talked about this summer when they were returning bodies of young people who were either murdered, or died in the care of the boarding schools. And for decades and generations, families never got answered. And then the bodies are exhumed and they're returned to their, their tribes. So when you think about all the things that, are, have, that are, our staff is dealing with right, directly, and then those big, larger movements and issues, like we've got to do something different. We've got to do something radically different. We can't just work and tweak us, what other folks do. We've got to think differently. So Tito mentioned people having time off. Uh, we were just talking about like shutdown time, right? Because one thing that I I love the um, the unlimited time off, but with people who are from the community and care about the work, they're least likely to take the days off, so they can have unlimited, and they take less time than if they had like fifteen day policy, right? Because with a fifteen day policy, the average person goes, I got fifteen days, and I need to take these bad boys before I lose them. When you have unlimited, people go. Oh yeah, I'll get to it. We'll yeah, we'll go on that cruise. We'll go on that, and then it never happens. And so we're we're talking about like four shutdown weeks where we're just gonna we're not gonna be open. We're not gonna be checking email. So if you haven't taken time, you at least know that we're gonna be shut down that week. Take that week, you know. So that's one of the things we're looking forward to. So like, not necessarily because everyone in our our team is is Christian, but because school's gonna be shut down around Christmas, we're just gonna take that time, 
We're just going to be done. We're going to be closed. Your kids are going to be off. So we're going to be off. Don't, I don't want you to check an email. I don't need you to worry about any of that. Uh, we're talking about doing it again sometime in the summer. Um, you know, um, we're, we're really new. Um, you know, like I um, filed for the name, the Library Institute and the website in like July 19. And then I was really doing this stuff, you know, January 2020. So we're new. But like, how do we talk about a spiritual leave policy? You know, so that for our team, you know, that wants to engage in um, uh, spiritual, traditional spiritual practices to do, um, you know, and that generally for the Lakota and Dakota folks is happening in the summertime. So how do we think about spiritual leave? You know, what does that even look like? You know, I, I want to think about, do we put a number of days on it or is that insulting? So do we just have an open-ended policy? It's spiritual leave, you take it in the summer and we're all, we shut down again. I don't know, but um, it's like not trying to, it's a little bit of thinking about what I wish I would have had in prior roles where I was the only black male, you know, and I was, uh, you know, carrying the weight of my students on my shoulders as a principal, as a founding principal, and wishing somebody would have checked in on me or provided me support. But it's also going beyond just what I would want and thinking, okay, how do I create space for my team to, to identify what they want, which may be different. Um, and so it's not so much as saying, this is what we do and you all must do what I do. It's here's some here's some room to get creative. And so like, I just, um, I just bought these, um, these back rolling wheels because I, I'm carrying a lot of tension in my back and shoulders. And so we're talking about a policy to reimburse our team to be able to get a chiropractor or massage therapy or, you know, get home, you know, fitness or equipment to do the things that mean something to you. So not saying everybody needs to sign up for the gym because I want to sign up for the gym, but here's, whatever amount you know that it might be five hundred dollars or whatever a year for you to purchase or to sign up for the type of treatment or therapies that matter to you we provide coaching so um you know the director of the Changleshka, she gets um emotional intelligence coaching it's a form of executive coaching we uh, learned it from the noble story group which is all about just like you know self-awareness and self-management in relate and then in, in relation to the people you work around the relational management and, and relational um, awareness. So just finding the pieces that are meaningful to each individual on the team, not assuming everyone is gonna heal um, or care in the same way. And the other part of it, and this sounds maybe doesn't sound like self-care because I'm about to talk about more work or different work, but we talk about in our, in our organization, talk about 20% time. And that's because I think like to, um, for me as an um, entrepreneur, I get to, um, I get to set the, the, the direction of our organization. And this is really the work, you know, this is my hard work. This is the stuff that makes my, my, my pulse raise. I get excited about this. I have, I'm energized by it. Um, and, I, and I know that for my team, th they share that passion, but they don't get the same level of, of autonomy to dictate what they're working on. We hired them to do a role. And so that 20% time is really like, what, is, what's, what drives you? What are you excited about? So they are, depending on their interests, you know, Heather's, she's got a, like a leadership, um, uh, like a leadership framework she's developing, which is not directly related to her work supporting schools or scholars or learners, I should say, but it's just something she's really excited about. She gets fired up about it. Um, and so, and each team member is working to identify the work that, that they want to do, that they want to just carve out. And so this is something I'm excited about. And it's about giving folks a voice and choice or agency in how they work, right? So there's a, uh, to have um, autonomy and to be self-authored or self-directed is part of it, um, but also just because I believe it's a good investment. Like they're smart people, they're super smart, and they're they're asking questions that do, in the long run, impact the communities you wish to serve. So I think it's only going to make us better. Whether we end up taking that leadership framework Heather's working on and it becomes a part of our work, or we never do the the, the work researching and building that is it's it's building her up, it's building her strength, her confidence in the work. So we're going to benefit from it either way, um, but to give her that chance to direct and author that and say, this is what I want to do versus me saying, hey, here's the, here's your healing path. Um, I think it means a lot. And then in the last part, I'm just a name. I'm a black man. So I still have the privilege of, 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 of being man in certain spaces. You know, sometimes being a black male is a double ne negative in some spaces, but to be a man in business is a, is a, it can be a, um, a privilege. And so also, like I say, going back to these are women. Uh, who are creating a space that is unique for them, for women, for powerful women. And so sometimes I just be asking them, well, what do you need? Because <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, so just you tell me what you need, and then I'll see what I can do to make it happen.
or to, to at least create the lane for you to make it happen for yourselves. So thank you all for, for sharing about the struggles as well as the support um, that you all are providing for yourself as well as your staff. Um, and I guess one of the things that as you all were talking, one of the things that I was thinking about is the idea of what is happening in our brains when it comes to um, safety and connection and learning, which is like our three separate parts of our brains. Um, and it's interesting the way that you all were talking about how you support your staff, how you support yourself, kind of align with that, um, what we call in somatic psychology as those, those safety space of the brain, the connection space of the brain and the learning part of the brain. So you need safety first and then connection next. And then that's when learning can happen. So, you know, that sense of feeling safe or developing safe, safety for the community first. And then Tito, you went into that cultural competence piece, which I think is so important, especially for the connection, those authentic connections that you can make. And then, you know, going into Jonathan, what you mentioned about learning and that idea of unique personalized wellness work and providing your staff with that voice, choice, and agency to really choose for themselves what that self-care looks like or that well-being looks like or that wellness looks like. Um, so thank you all for, for sharing that. And it was just, to me, as I was thinking thematically with each of you talking, it was interesting how you each kind of um, hit upon each of those uh, spaces. So in this last few minutes that we have together, what I would love for each of you to do is um, in about a minute, give some advice to other organizations who are looking to build a culture of well-being within the organization so that they can continue to do the great work that they're doing to support the communities that they serve. And whoever wants to jump in can jump in first. I'll jump in first. Um, three things that I think could be really beneficial and I think easy, easy lift for any organization. I think first, like, um, you know, pay attention and, and assume goodness, right? So when you see your staff struggling or you see that someone's work or behavior or efficiency seems to be declining or struggling, like assume that that person is, you know, giving their best and take the time to have that conversation, not necessarily about the work, but about them. Like, where are they? Where are you? How are you feeling? What do you need? Um, and I think really simple, like, you know, low hanging fruit. I think um, talking about outside goals and interests and, and, and things outside of the organization, I think sometimes we get so caught up in the work because it's nonprofit and there's so much to be done and there's so little time that we, our conversations can sometimes always be about the work. And I think some just having those conversations about other things, what do you do for the weekends? How are you having fun? What are your favorite activities? Where do you see yourself in five years outside of the organization? Like, those kinds of things, they, they're so small, but they, they do drop personal connections. And then finally, like, make sure you're talking about self-care often and not just um, anecdotally, not just, you know, inside of a, a staff meeting, but making sure that as a leader, especially, you're talking about the self-care you do. And my, in my calendar, I have times blocked off that I have listed as like me time. It just says me time. And everyone knows don't schedule time with Tito during the next week. I stop, I reflect, I'm doing my meditation, whatever it is. Um, and when I take time off, I also put that on my calendar and I put where I'm going so people can see that I'm not just talking about self-care, I'm being about it. So I think if you do those things like, you know, assume goodness, talk about outside goals and interests outside of work specifically and making self-care part of the everyday conversation, I think it's really easy stuff to do. Uh, agreed. Thank you for that, sir. My organization is binding in its approach to what you can and cannot do when you can and cannot do it. Um, very complicated. Like I very much envy the flexibility that both Tito and Jonathan bring to this conversation. The, you know, the things that they aspire to do and will do within their teams. Um, I find that I have a bit of a struggle with regard to policies and practices and normality um, around how folks in this industry, the education sector, uh, tend to trend towards work. 
um, whereas work is paramount and you do work until you just can't do work any longer. Um, the word that comes to mind instantly is grace, um, giving folks grace, but we don't have a structure nor an infrastructure for what grace feels like. And so it has to be individualized efforts. You as a manager, supervisor, leader, supporter, or advocate for um, finding spaces to ensure that you're not just giving it, but informing people of the grace that they deserve when they're going through struggle, challenge, or um, um, as they seek to overcome barriers towards their own individualized success, um, grace and support. Second, um, on an organizational level, uh, it is vital that you find pathways to listening to the voices of those who you're seeking to serve the most. Um, in every instance that I've been in, most often our people of color are our non-dominant culture by number. Um, not just by how America pits us into this pitfall of a missed opportunity for success, but by the number, we are oftentimes uh, in the minoritized amount and thus sometimes are overlooked and not listened to for what our individual or specific needs are. Um, a word that I'm finding very favorable in this past year or two is co-construction. You know, how do we create spaces to co-construct efforts within a system to ensure that folks are getting what they need, that they have the resources, the tools, the access and the opportunities that they need, especially for these hard ass jobs, right? Like, so equity is a real thing. Like an equity must exist in our system, right? Like who is getting the greater amount of grace and the greater amount of opportunity to provide space within their lives from the tumultuous work that is consistent, pervasive, and will not go away, potentially in their lifetime. Like we need to give additional amounts of grace through the idea of building a union with uh, both parties, those who are in roles of leadership who have the power to make these changes, and those who are most definitely impacted by the circumstances of the job that they've uh, chosen to take. Um, and with those two aligned in a particular pathway, I think we can get somewhere um, in some time. And also, you know, for us, larger organizations, we're fortunate enough to have this, not all do, but some sort of offshoot that provides free access to resources like mental health care um, or other health care uh, services that could uh, provide you with a little bit of an easier lift uh, in life so that you don't have to worry about that while you're also simultaneously worrying about this. And so um, employee resources, um, we have an 800 number that you can call. Um, it's sufficient up to like, I can provide you three sessions with someone and then you have to pay after that. Um, but just making sure that there's somebody or something that is an uh, access point for folks to be able to turn to when things get a little uh, discombobulating or out of pocket in your workspace. Yeah, um, I think it starts with, it's probably gonna start with disruption because you cannot, uh, this cannot just be the work of folks like my brother and I who work uh, outside of established systems, right? The majority of the folks that need this support and need this space are working within the established system, whether that's the education system or you know larger nonprofit organizations. So it's gonna start with disruption. There are a lot of ideas about what we can and can't do that just go unchallenged that, you know, so we just perpetuate a status quo that's unhealthy and unsustainable. Uh, when we had the conversation, so the Liber Institute is nestled into a larger community of entrepreneurs. We had the conversation about shutdown time. The over the bigger conversation was, well, we're all entrepreneurs, um, entrepreneurial cultures, you know, we work hard, da, 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 da. And it, it was just like accepted. And, and so there was like, oh, well, what if we, you know, give these times as earned rewards? If we hit all our goals, then we can plan to have Christmas week off. And I was like, hmm, that's cool. What if we just got them off because we're humans and we need time? And it was like, but in the end, that's the way things went. But it took someone to ask the question to disrupt. I didn't say that's a stupid idea. Let's just have it off. I said, hmm, what if we just got it off? Um, and so we have to disrupt the thinking uh, in order to do this. I think that's the first piece. I'm reading this book right now called The Hard Work Myth by Barnaby Lashbrook. He was like, um, What's his name? Richard Branson's uh, personal assistant back in the day. And um, it's all about how we, we think that if 35 hours is good, 40 is better, 40 is, 50 is better, 50 is 60 is better. And we go like, like 
Shamari said, and we, we work ourselves into um, a point where we're actually less productive. Uh, we lose critical thinking ability. We do our work slower um, and not as well. So we've got to disrupt those ideas about what hard work and good work looks like first. And the second part is radical listening, especially if you are in my position and you don't share the identity of the people that work with you. You can't tell people how to get to health or anything else for that matter. You have to listen. You have to be willing to ask questions and create spaces for them to talk to you. You also have to be, uh, like Tito said, you have to build trust. Just because you ask, hey, uh, Catherine, what do you need for your self-help? Health doesn't mean Catherine's going to give you an honest answer. Have you earned her trust? Have you made her aware and, uh, uh, to, that she is safe in this space to step forward and advocate for herself? Because if that hasn't been the case historically, don't expect the answer to be honest. How do you do the things to build the trust first so that folks think it's real? And I think it also goes back to something Tito said about you have to live it. You have to take vacation. You have to model self-care. You have to invite people to try things with you or encourage them to try things with you. They have to see that it's real. You need to talk about the fact that like, I had a meeting the other day and I asked if we could move it. And I, and I was tempted to not share the reason because I didn't want to unduly pressure the person. But the reason was I was going to, I want to go to soccer practice. And so I think, you know, what? I just got to be transparent and, but let her know if she can't do it, I'm just going to go to a different practice. But then, so she, she removed the meeting. And then after I sent her a picture from the field and thanked her, thank you for letting me do this. And I think it's important to let her know and let everyone know that you're doing self-care so that they can feel like they got to do it. Um, and I think as you listen, as you build trust, then you, you got to be willing to try things that are out of the box. Like I am just now about to hire a virtual assistant to help me with this work because it's, it's, it's crazy. I think like as a radical act, like more organizations to pay for extra help for their people, whether that's, you know, virtual assistance or getting someone to help people when they got to travel and they're like trying to figure out how to get here, there and everywhere and book hotels and all this crazy crap, because that's not what you hired them for. You know, you didn't hire Shamari to book trip to Denver. You hired him to lead your, you know, diversity, equity, justice, inclusion efforts or whatever. You didn't hire Tito to, um, you know, uh, catalog files and clear out his inbox. You hired him to lead the in in organization. So if he needs an assistant to help him do those things, to get to inbox zero, whatever he needs, do it. It's an investment in your people for the long haul that I think it pays off. It shows you that you care. It shows them that you want them to prioritize time, right? Not all, at, not all tasks are made the same. So if you're paying someone 80, 90, $100,000 a year, to pay someone else 15, 20, 25 bucks to organize certain files or organize certain tasks, it's a cost savings for your organization. It's a reinvestment in that person's time to the high leverage task that you can't outsource. I cannot outsource vision for Boston Uncornered to someone else. Tito has to do that. Or I cannot outsource vision for Bellevue School District's equity mission to someone that's gotta be Shamari. So the things that you can, outsource them so then they can redirect their time to the stuff that's high yield, the stuff that, you know, really fulfills and re-energizes, and then also that, that healing work. So I think that's it. I mean, I could, we could also get like into specific things that you can do, but again, that gets prescriptive. And I haven't done the radical listening in your organization. I haven't talked to your team. You have to do that. Um, and that's the imperative work. And last thing, I know I'm way over a minute. I think like, so uh, we talked about emotional intelligence earlier. I learned that from Matthew Taylor at Noble Story Group. And that's that Tito talked about asset thinking. Like, what are the noble stories you need to tell about your team, about the people you serve, and most critically about yourself so that you can do this in a sustainable way, right? When you start like, oh, you know, beating yourself up, oh, I should have done more of this. I should have done that. I can't believe I took the weekend off. Look at everything went haywire. Now I'm never taking time off again. I'm you, you start getting into these unhealthy patterns of thinking. What is the noble story you got to tell yourself about yourself or about others so you stay committed to these things, right? No, I'm a human. I'm a dad. I'm a mom. I have a partner. I have children. Or I have elderly relatives I take care of. I had to do that. This work will be done. If I get hit by a bus, they'll be higher. So, but, but they can't. My family can't get another me. My, my partner can't get another you know, wife or husband or, or dad or mom. So what are the things that I have to do? to be right and show up right on Monday. You gotta, you gotta be, be committed to those noble stories so you can stay in this work. Cause the hard work to Shamari's point, the hard work is the hard work. And if you're not there, do you trust that the next person they get is gonna do it in the same way you do?
Thank you. Thank you all so much for taking the time to share your expertise and experience with our community today. I am grateful and honored to have had this time with you all, and I'm really looking forward to more of it in the future. Thank you, Catherine, for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. You know, to have three Black men on this conversation about health and healing, is we're not the typical audience or the quote-unquote invited guests or experts. And so it's a radical act for you to create the space for us to talk about it together and to build relationships among us. Like I said, I, I don't know that other guy, Santo Silva, uh, just got to meet Shamari. So now I know we got, you know, we got a little brotherhood here. These are, this is another thing, creating spaces for us to come together. We often have to work across the lines of difference. It's nice to walk, work within um, a space of familiarity and to just build strength together. So thank you for creating a space for us to do that. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay tuned for more episodes of Wellness for Educators podcast.